This is Mako President Jerry Walker, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale, Mako's Policy Associate here with Mako's Executive Director. As always, Michael Sanderson. Michael, how are you today? Doing fine, Kevin. A little worn down. This has been kind of an exhausting week. It has been already. So we've passed Crossover Day. Uh, We've discussed the importance of Crossover Day here on the podcast. There's still plenty of time left in this session. The goal of today's podcast is to provide you with an update on where things stand particularly things that Mako uh, really cares about and has taken positions on. Obviously, again, there's a lot of time here. We need you to stay tuned and and be involved. But let's get into where things are right now, Michael. Yeah, and I mean, we don't have the capacity today to go through. I think Mako took a position on 80 or 90 different bills in the the legislative session. And we're not going to do that. So this is not going to be a four-hour episode. Uh, We tried to winnow this down. I see over there, Kevin, you got these stacks of papers. you Uh, got handwritten notes on top of written notes and everything. So we're going to do our best to try and fill Filter it down to, you know, something like a dozen and a half subjects that are, you know, meaningful and kind of interesting and particularly some things that are still in play down the stretch here. Yes. So let's go ahead and jump right in with uh, highway user revenues. We've talked about this a lot on the podcast. We do have a few updates here. The House and Senate have both approved identical versions of a bill that would double the county shares of highway user revenues, which is a MAKO legislative initiative. Uh, Both cross-files are with the opposite chamber. And essentially, again, this will ensure that counties receive approximately twice as much in fiscal year 20 through 24. And it's a pretty big deal, right? I mean, we've we've talked about this. I don't don't think we need to beat this to death, but but this is a really high priority for local governments. It's, It's a massive fiscal matter. And I mean, the idea of getting to double the level of funding where we've been for a while is is great. This isn't this isn't the grand slam home run, solve the whole thing, and it's all put to bed. But to have a multi year commitment of a higher level of funding, it lets some jurisdictions say, "Hey, we can get back in the in the paving business and do some resurfacing and and go out and you know line up some projects for multiple years and be thinking that way rather than, hey, is is this a year where we're going to actually get another nickel or dime?" Yeah, and anybody who's been driving around Maryland in March with snow and then sunshine. Certainly you have probably seen and uh, hopefully you haven't had any damage to your vehicle (laughs) because of the potholes, but certainly uh, a really good sign here and uh, be able to do some more paving, fill in some of those potholes. It's a big time win for Mako and local governments across the state. For sure. Speaking of uh, speaking of the highway trans- highway user revenues, talk about the budget and the BRFA really quickly. Uh, they have passed through the Senate. They're on second reader in the House. Um, great news for counties. There is no SDAT cost shift, which was proposed. Again, State Department of Assessments and Taxation, there was a proposal to make counties pay 90% of their costs. That has been removed. Uh, there is no flat funding for local health departments. Again, that's a huge deal. And for the first time ever, uh, both chambers seem to agree on full funding of the governor's local transportation grants. So 
Last time we talked about highway user revenues, we said there's a deal in place between 2020 and 2024, but we were still going to have to fight for our transportation grants this year. It seems like the House and the Senate have agreed uh, to fully fund the governor's uh, transportation grants for this year. Yeah, and that that gets us almost all the way for for 19 Mm -hmm. to that to that level of funding that the multi-year bill um, passed. So so that's 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 a good sign. You know, the multi-year bill was designed for down the road, uh, but we knew we still had to do a little scrapping to keep keep the funding in in the budget as the governor proposed it. Everybody's on board with that now. It's not going to be a matter of difference between the House and the Senate. So that's that's another good sign. Yeah. So, I mean, nothing's final until the, the budget comes out of the conference committee. But essentially here, it appears that counties are coming out wholly unscathed and better off. So good sign there. Uh, next, another legislative initiative for MAKO was um, advancing next generation 911 across Maryland. Uh, this was a MAKO initiative designed to accelerate the installation of Next Gen 911 in Maryland. Again, Next Generation 911 greatly improves location accuracy. So when you call 911, you know they actually know where you are. They don't just know a general area. Right. You'll be able to send media. So if you're stuck in a bad situation, you could text or send a video or a photo. Um, could really come in handy if you're in a tough spot. And um, the the update here is that the House and the Senate have both passed an identical bill. Uh, so that's very good news. The initiative will move forward. And, Michael, I think this was a top priority, not so much. I don't want to get into actually what the bill does or who is going to be on this commission, but really we want to make sure that all boats rise together in Maryland so that, you know, Worcester County has the same capabilities as Allegheny County right. and Montgomery has the same capabilities right. in the middle right. of the state as both of yeah. them. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, as you were describing, the the nature of communications is just really different than 25 years ago. And so 25 years ago, people had landlines. The, the trickiest thing was a business that had, you know, had Watts lines and things like that, these right. bundled cables and all that sort of thing. But that's as, that's as tough as it got mm-hmm. as far as finding out where a call is coming from. Uh, now, you know, it's just the, it's the nature of progress with technology. People have smartphones. They've got embedded GPS technology and so forth. We got to take the next step. This idea of triangulating using the the cell towers to come up with an approximate location is you know it's, it's the best we could do for a long time. Next gen is going to find these people who need help, and that's what everybody wants. And we want that to work wherever you are. Yeah, we live in a wireless world, and unfortunately, our nine one one was built in a landline era, and we're still using that technology. So yeah. we are confident this commission is a step in the right direction to get us where we need to be. Right. Next, uh, MAKO legislative initiative is strong and smart uh, school funding from the state. Um, The NOT Commission, who has been meeting, uh, they released their recommendations. There is a bill. We talked about that briefly, I believe, on the pod as well. But this is House Bill 1783, Senate Bill 1243. This legislation makes various changes to the state school construction program, uh, reduces regulation and administrative delays, provides options for alternative approaches, and creates incentives for cost-effective practices in school construction. Michael, this bill is being debated as we speak yeah. in the House Appropriations Committee. I think they just passed it out with amendments. Um, but it seems like this is going to be a good bill for MAKO. I think, by and large, uh, the, the county participants on the NOT Commission, this is a commission that met for two years mm-hmm. and, and sifted through what sort of efficiencies and structural changes can you make in you know, in the process for 
for selecting and approving and building the schools. And it's all of that stuff. And there, there's a lot of small components in the bill that that don't change the world, but I think are going to make things incrementally better. We're going to get some approval more quickly. Mm-hmm. We're going to have some more sense in, the, in some of the oversight. I think there's a lot of small things in the bill. Um, it is interesting to see how much this process has accelerated in the last few days. Uh, you know, for, for people who have been listening to, to this podcast through the session, we've been drumming our fingers, fingers waiting for, for the not commission legislation for weeks and weeks. Uh, it finally gets dropped like a week before the crossover date. And now suddenly it's a work group meeting every day. There's 19 different amendments being thrown around. Here's a, here's a reprinted bill. It's 40 pages long. Here, everybody read this. We're going to vote it tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, so that, I mean, it's kind of the nature of the beast, but an awful lot of work has gone into this in the last week after two years plus of meetings and deliberations and discussions. So let's talk about a few components of this bill, a couple of things that Mako would yeah. love to see happen here. One of the issues that we face is an issue with forward funding. So this is when a county puts up some of the state money that will be required for a project. When the state comes back and get and reimburses that the, the money, right now they reimburse that money to the school board and <laughs> not to the county, which right. in our eyes is, is illogical. You should be giving it back to the county because when you give it to the school board, they control that money, and then the counties have to go and uh, find a way to get it back from the school board. So this is an issue that we want to see addressed here. Yeah, I mean, it ends up being an odd negotiation between the county government and the school board. And I mean, Maryland's unusual. We have this strange circumstance where the county government is basically the funding authority for all things education. Right. The school boards don't have their own revenues. They don't charge their own taxes. They come to the county for their funding. They get you know formula funding and whatnot through the state. Whether you're talking about building a school or whether you're talking about you know, day-to-day operations, some money comes from the state. The county makes a political judgment about how much to support. We've talked about things like maintenance of effort and whatnot lying in the background. But this is really a strange anomaly that a county who says this project's so important we can't wait for the state funding we the, we need these seats for these kids now mm-hmm. all right that's a noble thing to do you, you 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 say we're going ahead with the school and we'll let the money sort itself out later right okay hats off to the counties who are willing to make that commitment and a number of jurisdictions have done that when they're in a high pressure situation and then what happens a couple of years later the project finally gets its state approval mm-hmm. the state shows up with its check and they send it to the Board of Education. Now, suddenly, the project's like already done. Right. Now we're getting reimbursed for, for funding that came from county government. The county probably floated a bond to do this. And now, what are you doing? You give the money to the school boards, and then the county has to negotiate and say, well, let's use that as a partial payment for whatever your next project is. But it, it's, a, it's a curious negotiation. Um, and honestly, there are some jurisdictions who, because they know how this is how the process works, they're reluctant to do a forward funding. Yeah, and that's a shame. And so by fixing this odd provision, hopefully more counties will be willing to do this because they're not so concerned about the process and how to recoup that money or have that money be spent uh, you know, as a down payment for another project with the school board. Right. So another uh, another idea here, the statewide facility condition index, uh, this was in the, the legislation. So essentially, uh, the state would like to have every school indexed, uh, and they want to look at every school and say, 
where are the schools that have been doing a really good job with upkeep, with maintenance, and then we want to see the schools that haven't been doing such a great job and rank them. Mako's concern would, was that funding would be tied to this ranking. So we don't think it's fair that a school who's done a really great job you know, with their maintenance and their upkeep could possibly be penalized uh, no. by way of yeah. some sort of ranking in an index. So that's something that we care about a lot, and it looks like that language uh, will be added to the bill. Yeah, I think I think it's consensus among the sort of informal, the House and Senate work group has, has sort of built, up, built together around this bill. I think it was a really quick consensus mm-hmm. that you, you don't want to have exactly what you just said. You don't want to have that sort of perverse disincentive. Right. You don't want to say the way to win is to ignore do, your schools. Do nothing. Right. So, I mean, that, that, that doesn't make much sense. So um, I think what you'll see is the, the bill's going to have, let's, let's do this inventory of what, what's the shape of our schools. And here what we're talking about is the facility condition mm-hmm. itself mm-hmm. and you know how old are their systems and what's the status of things like your boilers and your HVAC systems and other things like that. Um, you know, wiring, electronics, and that sort of thing. But take an inventory of how do things look, and then you at least have sort of a heat map of what needs are coming, where are we going to need systemic reforms, where are we probably going to need a brand-new school. Um, it makes sense to make those decisions more informed by current condition. Right. But let's not let's not set things up as a lockstep. And, like, the devil's going to be in the details. Even if this is kind of a punt, and let's not put the details in the bill, we'll give it to a work group, and they'll, they'll sort things out. Whatever the work product is, eventually you're going to have a list and somebody's school is going to be at the top of the list. This is the school that's most in need of funding. And then folks are going to say, well, how'd they get there? Right. And I think it would be hard to say if you had a school at the top that needs the money, it'll be hard to say, well, no, you know, that's, you know, so let's, let's figure that out. Let's make sure that that's not how we're going to do this. Uh, I think that's really important. And it's a, it's a function of the age of the school and the way it was built when it was originally built, as right. well as today's maintenance schedule. It's not as simple as, as you know, the responsible folks have schools that are in perfect shape. But but that's an element. Of yeah, it. a lot of factors go yeah. into that. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, one more issue here, um, eligible costs. So when we build schools, um, the state is a partner. So you typically counties and the state split costs. They split, I should say, eligible costs because some things like engineering and site design, the state has decided those are not quote-unquote eligible costs. So counties are on the hook for 100% of those costs. We'd like to see this issue be addressed and looked at to determine, well, this should really be an eligible cost because this yeah. is a part of doing business. This is a part of building a school. I mean, on, on paper, every, every I think it's every couple of years, the, the state does a revision of what's the state contribution towards the towards school construction cost in each jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. And if you're a county, you see that chart and it says, oh, my county, the state participates as a 50% partner. So that new school we're about to build, it's going to cost 60 million bucks. I'm waiting for a $30 million check from the state. Not so fast. Yeah, fifty percent of a subset of that sixty. Uh, you know, oh, you have to you have to do the land design and and the site site planning and the environmental specs. Then you have to get architects and engineers up front and all the bulldozers. That yeah, that 
that's going to be all on you. you Got to read the fine print. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, I, I, I say that in a sort of a joking tone, yeah. Yeah. but as a practical matter, um, that a fifty percent county will usually run the numbers at the end of a project, and when you tally it all up, the state contribution is thirty, thirty-five percent, something like that. Not that that's you know, not that that's a nightmare, but you end up with it's tougher for jurisdictions to afford projects if they're really covering 60, 70 percent of the cost instead of 50 or 40, right? So, so we certainly would like them to, to at least look at this and, and make a determination on what should be considered eligible. I think that's a really important piece of this legislation. And uh, moving forward, we certainly like to see some language in there that addresses it. Yeah. And it's not like these things are optional costs. Mm-hmm. It's not like we can just skip having an architect, right? right I mean, right. you, you need not. to have a plan, right? Yeah. We don't just <laughs> throw the bricks right. out there and see where they land. So anyway, it's, I mean, there's a good argument that these are essential parts of a school project. Um, the, the theoretical argument that the state doesn't have any role in these front end costs, I think its day has come and gone. So this bill, uh, I think we said earlier, is moving quickly. And one of the reasons yep. for that may be that uh, the legislature would like to get this in before the veto deadline. Yeah, so as a practical matter, if a bill passes during the legislative session, uh, the governor has a window of time to act on a bill and to decide whether to veto it. Um, so governor has the ability, like in most states, it's a different it's a different authority here. Our governor does not have line item veto authority to take a piece of a bill and, and isolate that for a veto. Right. Uh, governor Hogan can veto an entire bill if he chooses to do it. Okay, um, this bill looks like it may have some elements that will be controversial, some elements that probably went, didn't really come from the not commission. They were, I think, indirectly discussed during commission conversations, but they weren't really part of the final report. Nonetheless, if this bill ends up having some extra components and those have a political dynamic to them, what we could see here is this big, complicated bill moving in the House. We're, we're, we're talking, we're recording on Thursday. Uh, we think this bill's moving in the House of Delegates now, mm-hmm. and this bill could zoom to the Senate, get relatively quick consideration in the Senate, and potentially get to the governor's desk by the middle of next week. The advantage there is the clock would run out for the governor's decision before the legislature has to go home, right. and that gives them time to react to a veto and potentially override a veto if they were so inclined. Right. So certainly a lot to watch here. This is moving very quickly. Again, it has... Uh, Receive preliminary approval from the House Appropriations Committee should be on the House floor very shortly, and then it would move to the Senate. But we do expect this to move very quickly. So um, keep watch on this bill. We're always happy to uh, answer any questions you may have. Yep. Let's go to Mako's fourth legislative initiative. Unfortunately, not the best news here. Uh, the Public Information Act. The idea here was we wanted to modernize the Public Information Act. Um, basically, the Public Information Act was written in the days of uh, written pieces of paper, right? We now, Mm -hmm. again, we live in this uh, wireless age. We live in an age where we have body cameras and robots (laughs) and surveillance and whatnot. Um, This was a really interesting uh, discussion, I think, on this bill. Um, Again, we wanted to protect the release of personal contact information. You know, when you ask for the, you know, your local governments to provide you with newsletters or emergency alerts. The good news is I think that part of the bill was passed in another bill, so we get that. But we really wanted to protect victims of sexual assault, domestic violence, child abuse. We didn't think those videos that may be taken from a body camera or from a robot Mm -hmm. or from whatever should end up on social media. Unfortunately, 
the bill was recommitted in the Senate. Yeah, so it's a procedural move that effectively takes the bill from final consideration in the Senate, sends it all the way back to its committee of consideration. And I've seen this happen 100 times, and about 95 out of 100 times, that means it's over. And so for this bill, the likely outcome is we're done. So um, the bill was on the Senate floor, yeah. and, and we saw the bill get recommitted. Actually, the chairwoman of the uh, EHE committee in the Senate stood up and asked for the bill to be recommitted. I think, you know, there were a lot of questions on this bill. Maybe the committee was spooked a little bit. They didn't want to lose the bill. And, Michael, um, you know, during the hearing in the in the EHE committee, there was some opposition, but all of a sudden we saw groups lobbying on the floor, you know, when the bill was on the floor, showing up with all these questions, and right. that sort of changed the dynamic. Right. It's, it, it's, a, it's, an, it's a strange twist. And this is, I mean, this is a complicated bill. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a somewhat challenging issue because we've talked about this a little bit, I think, but um, you're trying to balance people's privacy with a general public right to know what's going on with and inside their government. Right. So that's, I mean, that's an inherent tension with things like the Public Information Act. We've, you know, we, we've kind of laid this out, but you know, footage from body cameras is potentially really more invasive than anything that's in a file folder, you know, in a, in a drawer at a government records office. Mm-hmm. The idea of this camera is on while the officer's walking around your house looking for somebody um, you know, comes to a, a domestic violence call, comes inside a home and sees who knows what doing, what, you know, who knows what they're doing. Um, all that's going to get captured on footage. We really felt like there's a wide band of this stuff that the law should just say, don't give it out. Right. It just doesn't belong in the public domain. Uh, you can understand someone who's got a different view who says the public's got a right to know what's going on. Um, and, I mean, police issues are sensitive. We mm-hmm. know that. So there's a political sensitivity there as well. So, and, you know, you if things from the headlines kind of got complicated in this bill, even though this bill wasn't about – this wasn't about, you know, those kind of cases. It wasn't about things where someone's getting injured or someone's rights are really being violated. All that stuff was carved out of the bill. But – those are easy questions to ask. And if you don't like the bill, if you ask a tricky question, that's a lot of weight on a bill getting passed on the on the, on the chamber. So um, when, when the chair of the committee stood up, one of the things she mentioned was we've got groups, like you said, working the floor of the Senate, mm-hmm. passing out pieces of paper, telling senators vote against this bill or ask these tough questions. And these are groups mm-hmm. who they didn't even sign in and participate in the public hearing. They never made these views known at the, at the public hearing on the bill before the committee. And now suddenly they're blowing up the bill on the floor of the Senate. Um, I, I mean, you know, to some degree, I mean, we're, we're disappointed. Mm-hmm. Mako's worked really hard on this issue. This is three years running trying to get this bill passed. Uh, th- this might mean the end of a three-year fight for something we thought made a lot of sense. Yeah, and I mean, we, we definitely compromised on the bill. We had the support of the Maryland Coalition Against Sexual Assault, Common Cause, the Press Association. I mean, those are all good government groups who were on board. Um, unfortunately, you know, there were some people who wanted this to go further, and there right. was an amendment on second reader to take the bill a little bit further. That was a friendly amendment to us and to Senator Kagan, who sponsored the bill. But at the end of the day, there, I think there were just too many lingering questions, and the committee chairwoman decided that it needed to go back to committee. But as you mentioned, typically when a bill is recommitted, that's the death knell. It's not completely over. It's not out of the question. There still be, you know, maybe something that can be worked out. 
but um, but definitely disappointing. Yep. All right, we've gone through Mako's legislative initiatives. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll get into some more bills that Mako uh, is heavily invested in, all that and more after the break. back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. We have gone through Mako's legislative initiatives. We spent some time covering those. Now we're going to check off the box on some uh, other bills that we've been following. Um, the, the goal here is to spend just a few minutes on each bill. These are in no particular order. <laughs> Michael, let's first talk about small cells. We have talked about small cells extensively on this podcast. We do have a major update. Again, this is a uh, this is technology that the wireless industry very much wants to install across the state uh, to get to 5G, uh, faster internet speeds on your devices, mobile devices. Counties definitely want to advance, that, advance the technology, but we think it's uh, being addressed at the local level. And uh, the bill, the, the hearing was canceled in the Senate Finance Committee. Quite a development there. It seems like uh, very surprising that this sort of went out with a whimper instead of a bang. It's, it's sort of a strange twist. I mean, uh, I know Mako and county governments, the municipal league, and some other players, or like a group like Common Cause, mm-hmm. was were all prepared for a big hearing. Yeah, we and had we, lots of panels lined up. So a lot, a lot of back and forth all through the session. Mm-hmm. I think this was deliberate that in the Senate, uh, the, the plan was in the Senate, they, they, they deliberately scheduled the hearing late in session, almost to the crossover date. Um, to, to sort of give maximum time for some coordination, conversation, and, and you know maybe negotiation between the players. And we had a good deal of back and forth between local governments and the industry. I think there was some degree of optimism that you know after a hearing laid out all these issues, is it possible we would have ended up with a set of amendments that could have worked something out? Uh, possible. But I think the local government view here was you don't really need state legislation to do the awesome things that this technology investment uh, could bring. Mm-hmm. And and I think ultimately the, the Senate sponsor and I think indirectly members of the committee felt the same way. This was going to be a long, rigorous hearing on a topic that really w- the, the case hadn't been made to, to go ahead and pass a statewide bill here. So, right. so I think – so this puts the issue to bed for this year. Mm-hmm. The House, the delegates had always planned to just take this up after the Senate was done. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there probably won't even be a House hearing on the bill. It will just get withdrawn or something of that nature. Um, I think now this shifts the focus of this topic to local governments. Right. So local governments uh, doing what's best for their communities certainly want to integrate this technology into those communities, but doing it in a way that best fits. Uh, there's not a one-size-fits-all solution, I don't think, for this sort of technology. Right. And and I think the industry makes a really compelling case mm-hmm. that this is the way that, that wireless service is going to get better in the years ahead. So you want these small devices. I mean, I mean, the whole idea is you're going to at least augment and eventually maybe replace the big, tall cell tower that reaches out for a couple miles in every direction. Right. You're going to see fewer of those, and you're going to see more toaster-sized boxes up and down the street every few hundred feet. So you'll be connected to a much smaller device that's a lot closer to where you are. Right. Okay, that's, that's fine. Um, I, I think... 
what the legislature is basically saying to local governments is put your money where your mouth is. We talked a lot about locals being able to do this. We can approve the permits. We can go through the zoning and we can make this happen. Mm -hmm. happen. I mean, the Federal Communications Commission already says you can't just say no. Right. We are preempted from doing a moratorium or things that are tantamount to to a moratorium. So this isn't a question of whether it's going to happen or not. It's more a question of... Does the industry who has reasonable location ideas and you know and 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 proposals and so forth are they going to get reasonable treatment in Maryland? And we're already seeing you know these these boxes are getting put up across Baltimore City and multiple different counties have mm-hmm. passed laws to to, to um, do the permitting process and, and do their timetables and their review all this kind of stuff. So that's what I think the legislature wants to see more of is nine months from now when the next legislative session starts up, they don't want to hear stories that the industry has been completely baffled and most of the counties still have no process and won't approve anything. They want to hear this is happening. So it, it's to some degree, it's on us. You know, the ball's in our court. You right. know, show up. Yeah, and we're certainly we, – we want to help all of our members, yeah. you know, in, install this technology and do it in a way that's best for them and, and their residents. Yeah, and to some degree, I think MAKO as an organization, we can play a role like that. Yes. I mean, people think of our organization as as an advocacy group who works in Annapolis and we're out here killing bills or passing bills, that sort of stuff. We, we're happy to do that and that's a big part of our, our charge. But when the legislature goes home, I mean, I think we're, we're fixing to do an event in June mm-hmm. to bring this issue back to the the forefront, get the county technical people and planning and zoning people together and start walking through this. What should your ordinance look like? How do you get it passed? How do you start deploying in ways that make sense for your your neighborhoods? Yeah, we'll certainly have to work closely with the wireless industry as well. So this will be a collaborative effort moving forward. But um, the big news is with the small cell bill, Senate Bill 1188, House Bill 1767, is that that bill will not move forward. Right. Let's talk about the Forest Conservation Act, House Bill 766, Senate Bill 610. This is a legislative priority for the Chesapeake Bay Foundation and other environmental groups. Michael, you and I are probably not the best people to discuss this bill because it is so thick. But, um, you know, as introduced, the bill expands the definition of priority retention area under the Forest Conservation Act. Uh, It creates specific written justifications that must be met in order to cut down a priority retention area, requires a one-to-one replanting ratio for trees. Um, Right now, the bill is being subjected to a work group in the Senate. Uh, That work group is led by Senator Mac Middleton, the chairman of the Finance Committee. The House also has a bill, but they have yet to take action. Um, So I guess the update here is things are still a bit in limbo. Yeah, um, so... We have talked many times about make the crossover deadline for things that you want to have pass. Uh, This is a curious case where – uh, this is this is a bill a number of environmental groups would really like to see pass at least in some form mm-hmm. and I, I, I think the only I don't, I don't think the bill as introduced is is alive but pieces of it or things that are accomplishing these goals I think there's still some interest in in doing something on that front it is a curious move to see on the floor of the Senate though that the committee passes the bill out there are questions on the floor. There are senators who, who want to know more and are contemplating amendments. We've talked about that motion to special order, right? right. So you make a, make a bill, a special order of business, and almost always it's for the next day. I mean, I'll, give me a day to work on my amendment. Give me a day to sort out the amendment that's been offered, and I want to be able to understand what it's doing. Okay, that's, that's, that's the standard give here. Uh, the bill was on the floor of the Senate on Monday, 
and a, a request for a special order was made, and it was granted for a week. Right. So till next Monday. <laughs> right. So um, that is a strong indication that there were lots of questions. Let's see if we can get this to consensus. So then, you know, then they will have presumably a new set of amendments offered on the floor in an effort to bring together some of the stakeholders who are still opposed to the bill. I don't think local governments are the the tip of the spear on this, but there is a good deal here that sort of undermines your own local planning decisions and uh, you know the the notion that you might have gone through your comprehensive plan and said these are the areas in a downtown community where we want to focus infill development or more growth in places that are already served by mass transit or already served by infrastructure, water and sewer, all that sort of stuff. This might be as smart growth a plan as as you can find in the state. And then suddenly it becomes no longer viable because of this new element showing up saying, no, can't cut down these trees unless you have this massive reforestation offset in your downtown municipality or, you know, your urbanized area of a big county that might not be just mathematically might not be possible. Not feasible. And we're talking about long term planning here. This is stuff that, you know, could have been worked on for many years, a lot of money being spent, a lot of time being spent. And then, you know, just like you said, this bill undoes all of that. That That's obviously an issue. But um, the bill is being work grouped. Mako has a seat at that table. And we will see what happens next Monday when the bill yeah. is back on the floor. I think the I think the Probably the most likely and best case scenario is you get these stakeholders who have been meeting through the week and try and sort through what amendments could could work out. Uh, you end up with a bill back on the floor. Here's a new set of amendments. It's seven pages of amendments. We'll offer them, give everybody a day, special order again for a day, give everybody a chance to read them. And then you'll have multiple people saying, okay, you know, I've talked to these stakeholders and you know, the building community is okay. The environmental community is okay. The local governments are okay. We've, we've got everybody on board. So I, I'd like to think in several days time, that's where this bill is going to be. Yeah. And especially with Senator Middleton, who is known as the fixer, as a deal maker, as a guy who brokers compromise. Um, we'd like to think that he can work something out here and that everybody can uh, be on the same page and, and, you know, this bill can can get some legs. And it doesn't hurt from our perspective that Senator Middleton is a guy with a local government background, and he remembers what it was like being the president of the county commissioners in Charles County and doing land use as a fundamental part of the job. That very, helps. very sensitive to local government yep. issues. All right, let's talk about another big surprise. Um, anyone who has been around town for a few years knows that attorney's fees for constitutional violations, House Bill 1270, Senate Bill 1042, this has been a big issue for MAKO, um, particularly last year. Huge fight, right? The bill made it to the floor. We were able to fight it off on the floor. It went back to committee. Um, It it was just a humongous, humongous effort and fight. Um, The bill was back again this year. We were ready again, um, you know, to put our gloves on and go back. This is essentially um, a bill that would uh, award attorney's fees to anyone who prevailed on a constitutional claim in state court. Obviously, this would likely increase both litigation and costs um, for local governments. Uh, This year, Neither bill, the bill's cross-filed, has moved out of its respective committee, which is really surprising. We've said on this podcast already the crossover date has passed, and it looks like uh, this bill is unlikely to move, which, again, 
going out with a whimper instead of a bang, we are very surprised. Yeah. I mean, this, I mean, talking about constitutional claims, it gets a little esoteric, but yes. this is a really wide swath of lawsuits against governments. Way too broad. And, and we were really concerned that the price tag on doing this was going to mean not only, you know, legitimate cases that we already face today, but it'll bring a whole extra wave of cases out of the woodwork because enterprising plaintiffs' attorneys will see an opportunity to find 50000 bucks in attorney's fees. And actually, you know, at the public hearing on these bills uh, back in February, uh, it's, it's kind of a weird side effect that last year, you, you mentioned this is a big fight on the floor of the Senate. Mm-hmm. The bill had already passed the House. And the Senate was talking about their version of the bill. It got out of committee. That was a surprise to us. And it was on the floor of the Senate. This stretched on for maybe four weeks of of last session. It was was, was a multi-week fight. It was back and forth. Lots of hold motions, a lot of extra amendments being offered, a a lot of dust up on the floor of the Senate. But that brought more visibility to this issue. And so when the bill was reintroduced this year in trivially different form from last year, basically the same thing. Suddenly, we had county attorneys knocking on Mako's door saying, can I please come to Annapolis and help? Because if this bill passes, it's going to be a nightmare for me here in Caroline County or up in Garrett County or over in Baltimore County. So so instead of, you know, sometimes Mako does a testimony panel and we'll bring right. in one or two people who are subject matter experts from county government to sit at the table with someone like you or me. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, we had two panels of people. Everybody had different issues. We had all sorts of different arguments to make. We were very energized, very focused, and I think planted a great deal of doubt in the minds of even delegates and senators who had previously voted for versions of this bill. Uh, Once they started to hear the kind of things that could happen, that do happen in federal court, and the way this bill wasn't really built to look like federal court, um, there were a lot of question marks in both the, in both of those committee rooms after we left. so Yeah, certainly some different perspectives were raised. I think, uh, you know, you said a lot of different people were here. You know, they weren't here last year. Uh, maybe some senators and delegates saw some folks from their districts back at home and thought about some of these issues that they were raising. And it really raised a lot of different issues. And uh, again, it's just really surprising that the bill doesn't look like it will move out of either committee. So this is a huge, huge win for MAKO. We were really prepared um, to have to fight this bill again. But I think that the panels during these hearings did such a fantastic job um, that enough doubt was raised that they just have decided not to move the bills. And we made some we made some legitimate efforts to try and work something out here. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think as we have talked about this issue, uh, it, it always felt to me like we were principally concerned with the unintended consequences of what the bill would do. Right. And the supporters and sponsors of the bill were talking about something that was I – mean, th- those weren't the things that we were objecting to. When they said what we want out of this bill is this, right. these, these, these poor people who have a legitimate claim but the, no attorney will take the case because there's, no, there's money. no money in it. Okay, that's your centerpiece argument. But if you pass the bill in anything like the form it was introduced, you end up with just page after page of nightmare outcomes. Yes. And there's no – I mean, one thing that did become clear, there's no state that has passed a law that looks much of anything like what was what was being proposed here in Maryland. And 
a lot of delegates and senators were under the impression that we're just catching up with Connecticut or Massachusetts or other places like that. Washington, yeah, once, so, so once once that impression got washed away, that changed this debate a good deal. But looks like looks like this one is not happening this year. Big deal. Big yep. deal. Let's jump back into education. Let's talk about the Kerwin Commission bill, House Bill 1415, Senate Bill 1092. So as a precursor to the Kerwin Commission's final report, um, this is essentially a bill that is a bridge to Kerwin. So it would establish a comprehensive teacher recruitment and outreach program, a K-8 through literacy grant program, uh, learning and extended academic programs grant program, career and technology innovation grant program. Um, and it also would ensure uh, funding for the current pre-kindergarten grant programs and the Teaching Fellows for Maryland Scholarship Program. This is another thick bill. Um, that Those are some of the highlights, but essentially grant funding for local school systems would increase by about $4.5 million in 2019. This is state money, and then $34 million annually by FY22. MAKO supports this bill. The bill is moving. Uh, it passed the House, and it's now waiting to be heard in the Senate Education, Health, and Environmental Affairs Committee. Yeah, things are looking bright. I mean, this is, I don't know, how, yeah, Kerwin Jr., or the down payment on Kerwin. Or, I like it. Uh, whatever, yeah, with some, some phrasing along those lines. But um, we know the big debate about the, the Kerwin Commission is talking about issues that once they come together and become fiscal proposals have the have the potential to really reframe the state's commitment to education and what, what we fund and what we focus on. So we know big stuff is coming. Yep. And as of six months ago, we thought big stuff was coming for the 2018 session. We thought the Kerwin bill would be the most important bill of the year. Right. As it turns out, uh, Kerwin Commission asks for more time. Uh, they get their extension. That's part of this bill, too. Yes, it is. Is. Yes, <laughs> um, it is. So that's part of this bill is to you know, continue working on this stuff. So it looks now like the big stuff is going to be for the 2019 session, which is kind of weird because you'll have a new fleet of legislators. I mean, a lot of turnover in, in the House and Senate we know of. Uh, the mm-hmm. voters will probably give us a few surprises and add a little extra turnover to that. Yep. So um, there'll be some new faces who are going to show up and find out, wow, this is a, a potential mammoth undertaking in year one of a brand new term. Um, that'll be a twist. But uh, but this this bill is is sailing. I, I will say, lying in the background of all these school funding issues is, you know, to what extent is this new commitment to education funding about the state living up to its responsibility in the state constitution and its obligation to school children, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to is this an expectation for local governments to do something different than they have been? Right. And and that's something the commission is going to take up. But I think it's encouraging to see this year's bill is targeting several areas and saying the state needs to do A, B, C, D, E. And this bill is not talking about we need to have a change in the way county funding works or we need to have them step up and do B and D from that list or stuff like that. So, I mean, it's a small piece of what will eventually be be a large and very important debate. Yeah, I mean, I attended all of these uh, hearings, all with all the committee uh, <laughs> meetings, and, and there was a lot that still left to be worked out. But I think these are some of the areas that there was consensus on. You know, when they come back after session and continue meeting, they'll start having to deal with, you know, education formulas and how you calculate wealth and, and all that stuff, which is going to be a massive undertaking. But at least for this year, this is a state commitment to some of these programs that there was consensus on the commission uh, should be happening. So it's good to see this bill moving. And it's virtually a virtual consensus in the legislature, too, that these step, these early steps are, are worth doing. Yes. 
Um, speaking of education, we've talked about the concept of a education lockbox uh, from casino revenues, right, from commercial gaming revenues. There were two different proposals here. The governor had a proposal to do this through statute, and the General Assembly has a proposal to do this through a constitutional amendment. Shocker, it seems that the General Assembly has decided to go with their proposal, which would be the constitutional amendment. And I don't think that's so much political as it is. This is a stronger and more substantive way to ensure that any money that's coming from gambling revenues in Maryland from the casinos is going directly to education. Right. Some people would argue, you know, and say, I thought we already did that. Um, you know, in a way we have. A lot of that money does go directly into education. But um, some of the money has been supplanting funding instead of supplementing funding. The idea here is to put a constitutional question on the ballot, let the voters decide whether or not they think that all of this money should go to education. This would be phased in over a few years. Um, this bill, the constitutional amendment bill, uh, has passed the Senate. It now waits to be heard in the House. The Senate did make a change as originally drafted. The phase-in started in 2021. 20, uh, the Senate changed it so that it would start in 2020. So in 2020, you'd have $125 million uh, from these uh, casino revenues going directly to education, $250 million in 2021, $375 million in 2022, and then 100% of the revenues beginning in 2023 and every year thereafter. Right. So, I mean, you're talking about $500 million a year or so mm -hmm. um, as a new commitment. We'll get there over a few years, but it's a new commitment above and beyond what we're doing today. So on a certain level, I mean, that that it's got, it's got two components here. We've talked about this a bit, but we know the current commission recommendations are coming. And no self-respecting education commission shows up and says, let's spend less money. Mm -hmm. So we, we, we know that the commitments Kerwin is going to want Maryland to make are going to have a price tag. So this is trying to blunt some of the criticism that, that goes back to Thornton back you know, 15 or so years ago when the last big education commission was formed. They adopted a bunch of new formulas, and they really only had year one paid for. It was, you know, here's 70 million bucks by a new cigarette tax. Right. But there was no plan for how do you fund the long term because this was going to be a, a billion, billion and a half per year commitment mm -hmm. uh, above and beyond. So – and then, then you ended up with um, things like, you know, approving a proven, a proven, uh, slots and then full-on casinos as a way – to, to find the funds to, to live up to the commitment of Thornton. Uh, along the way, we saw other things. County governments feel like we ended up uh, losing a great deal of our highway user revenue and transportation revenues as a result of those pressures on the state general fund. Um, and we ended up with a, a shift of costs for teacher pensions right. landed on county governments ultimately. Um, basically, it's all connected. I mean, yep. you make a big spending commitment and then don't have the revenues behind it. Okay, you've you've set yourself up for you know for for some numbers problems. So these issues are connected. The idea of building a lockbox, you put it in the constitution. You want to make a wager on what the voters are going to say when they see they see mm. the idea of you know should this money be spirited away only for K you know for for education of our kids? You think you think you think most people are voting against that? Yeah, I think most people are going to vote for that. Yeah, I yeah. think that's a winner. Yeah. So so that'll pass. That'll become law. It'll be in the constitution and. Then you've got a, a, a fundamental funding commitment that goes out multiple years that at least some of the groundwork for what you're going to need to pay for Kerwin. Now, uh, you know, unfortunately, we saw a school shooting here in Maryland um, this week. Uh, this is part of a disturbing national trend. 
And uh, we've seen a lot of school safety bills introduced, but I think there was a really interesting debate on the Senate floor when this lockbox bill was being debated about whether or not we should fence off some of this money for school safety. So different things for for school, you know, bulletproof windows and doors or counselors, you know, security cameras, all different aspects of school safety. Um, Ultimately, there was an amendment proposed to fence off some of this money. That amendment was rejected. But now we're seeing a number of school safety bills coming in. Um, Even before the the terrible incident this week, um, we saw in St. Mary's County, we saw these bills being introduced in response, I think, to the Florida school shooting. But now, you know, there's a lot more pressure to get something done to make sure that our schools are safe and secure. County governments have committed a great deal of time and money to doing this in their local jurisdictions. But we're seeing the state now saying we need to figure out a way to provide some grant money for this or that for your doors or your security or counselors, mental health. Um, a lot of ideas on the table, but that debate on the floor and the amendment that was ultimately rejected was a really, really interesting conversation to listen to. Yeah, I, th- I think so. And part of that conversation, I mean, I, I think you know, to, to, to cut to the chase, I, I think this matter of what to do on school security is probably going to be the highest profile debate for the last couple weeks of session. Absolutely. I mean, we've got that to sort out whether whether it ends up being legislation or whether it ends up being a component of the capital budget or some combination of the two. Uh, you know, we've seen multiple bills come in with some bipartisan, high visible sponsors in the Senate, mm-hmm. um, and those have the hallmarks of being, okay, this is, you know, something the Senate might want to do. Uh, it's, it's, it's a tough issue, right? I mean, it has, there, there is a, there is a partisan angle to issues, um, like, you know, school safety is, is in the same neck of the woods as gun violence and legislation about gun violence tends to rapidly turn into team red and team blue. Right. Um, this, this is not purely a partisan issue, uh, but the, the specific means of what do we fund? What's the multi-year commitment? Where's it coming from? What's it going for? I mean, as like, I mean, you've been looking through these bills. I know you've you've got dog-eared copies of every single one of these bills do. down on your desk. I do. I do. Uh, but I mean, there's there's a lot of different ideas. It's not it's not it's not like it's a, we're going to flip the switch. Will we or will we not make a commitment to school security? Um, there's a lot more to that. Yeah, I think we ultimately something will happen. There will be a commitment. It's just a matter of what happens, how you fund it. Um, and, and where that money comes from will really be the question. But um, a fascinating debate. And unfortunately, yes, we're seeing some political undertones here. But ultimately, this is a bipartisan issue. And I think there will be a, a compromise and a resolution to this issue. Yeah, I, I think so. Okay. So um, this morning, I'm thinking about Airbnb. This is Senate Bill 1081. This is about Airbnb and other similar platforms. Uh, there was a debate uh, in the Senate Finance Committee earlier this week. I'm putting all this information together. Um, and we find out, what, an hour, an hour and a half ago that the House killed the bill. So the Senate was all ready to work this out. They had amendments. They were going to work group this. Mitko was there. Uh, you know, Natasha was in the room. She's testifying. And then all of a sudden we find out during the snowstorm yesterday, the House Economic Matters Committee put this issue to bed and, and killed the bill. Yeah, which I mean, it was, a, it was a strange study in contrast, because if you if you watch the hearing in the Senate, 
um, you certainly came away with a sense that that committee wanted to work this out. Yes. I mean, this you know, you've talked about um, about Chairman Middleton having this reputation as a uh, you know, we'll bring everybody together and we'll we'll sort this stuff out. Uh, the vice chair, Senator Astle, was saying the same kind of words and saying, you know, we're gonna we're gonna have amendments on this bill. We're gonna have this all worked out. We got a couple of weeks. We can get this done. Yep. And one after another, the panelists who were there, you know, either supporting or opposing the original bill, were all just warmly embracing the idea of a big work group let's let's sort this stuff out and people from from the company Airbnb there mm-hmm. were a lot of individual hosts and innkeepers and so forth there were the bricks and mortar hotel companies and their representatives were at the table and you know our local government people were there and so forth and on the notion of hey can we sort this stuff out everybody said yeah I'm, I'm willing to spend the time I'm I'll, we'll, we'll put in some effort so I mean, I'm thinking okay you know we're going to talk on the podcast about hey this is sort of a sleeper late session issue and you know we've been talking with our colleague Natasha Mayhew does our lead on this issue and she was saying okay we're ready to engage I'm, I'm going to w- work together and the two of you have been pulling together all yeah. these bullet points getting ready we're going to go into this work group we're going to be ready we were just talking this morning about it that we're, <laughs> we're going to dive in right. and then we find out mm, no dice no, no dice. dice so so and I mean just as a practical matter the Senate could have been poised to really put in a lot of effort on this. But now that the House committee has already said no bill, they vote unfavorably, it's done, th- there's no point in pulling together that work group any longer. It's very unlikely that, that you know the House is going to take up an issue that they've already killed. So um, we'll take that one off the list, I think. That one is off the list. Let's get into um, local health department core funding. This is uh, House Bill 1620, Senate Bill 976. This is a simple bill. That would change the index for the local health department's state core funding formula from the general index to the medical index. So this is about keeping pace. Yeah, um, this is this is the, the their formula funding right. is is basically supposed to be in you know today's dollars times your population. Right. So every year the formula gets adjusted by the change in the state population and also the cost of living, which which makes plenty of sense if what you're spending your money on is gasoline and broccoli and paper clips. Um, but you're not. Right. But for, for local health departments, um, they're not doing that, right? They are. They're spending on some of that. But this bill would pin the funding to medical inflation. So that would it would keep pace with costs of medications, equipment, and related expenses. Seems like that is you know common sense. Um, it's not the big solution, but it's a fair commitment to keep pace. I mean, you know, funding right. for our local health departments was slashed in 2009. Right. We're still 20 million behind our fiscal year 2008 funding yeah, levels. Ten, ten years ago, right? Yeah, yeah, ten years. So, I mean, this was a way. This is a way uh, to to at least you know for the state to commit to keeping pace. Uh, the bill was heard by the House Appropriations Committee and the Senate Finance Committee. Neither committee has taken action on the bill. Right. Um, you know, we've said that we've passed crossover, but this bill is certainly not done. Yeah, I think we're putting a little effort into it now. And one thing is this bill doesn't have any effect on the current year's budget. Right. So, I mean, this Makes is something. Yeah, so we, we worked with the sponsors on, on you know, sort of conceiving and building up this bill. Mm-hmm. And and uh, deliberately, we didn't want this to mess up the budget. So, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a tough lift to try and pass a bill that, that, you know, that costs money or something in the current budget year. 
but this is saying hey, starting with FY20, let's let's have it keep pace with their actual costs as opposed to the general cost of living. It, it makes sense. This is not a budget buster. Like you said, this is not the big solution. It's not going to get us back that $20 million. But, you know, it's, it's a few hundred thousand bucks a year, and it's a reflection that local health departments are being asked to do a ton more than, than was the case 10 years ago mm-hmm. when, when basically their funding got cut in half. And we've talked about that here on the podcast before. If you want to go back and listen, uh, that's a whole other conversation. But, yeah, I think this would be a good faith effort from the state to say let's at least tie this to the right inflationary index. So if, if this goes our way – uh, watch for the House bill, House Bill 1620, Plymouth Rock, right? We, um, <laughs> but look for, uh, yeah, look for that bill to possibly get out of appropriations in the next few days. And I think if so, we have one nice little factor going for us. The chair of the Senate Rules Committee, who has to decide whether a late arriving bill should get its, cha- get its full hearing, that's Senator Klossmeyer, who happens to be the Senate sponsor on this bill. So yeah, a happy good, coincidence for us. Pretty good coincidence there. And, and I think, you know, talking about the bill getting out of the House, the Appropriations Committee has been very, very busy with the budget. And now that the budget is beginning to wrap up, it seems to be pretty much a done deal. They're going to have a lot more time to look at some of the other bills that they have sitting around yep. that they're saying, hey, you know what, we should probably mm-hmm. move this bill. So thankfully now the budget's done and they'll, they'll have more time to look at this other stuff and hopefully move this bill because it's a great bill. Yep. All right. So LOSAP, this is the Length of Service Awards Program, House Bill 1515. Um, essentially, this is about volunteer firefighters. And although volunteer firefighters are not paid, they typically have special benefits such as workers' comp. And they also get these benefits after a certain number of years of service. Um, it's a mini pension, sort if of. you yeah. will, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, the, this bill would say you can take the years of service that you have in County 1 and then move to County 2 and apply those years of service into County 2, and County 2 will pay you based off of their program that they have. Most counties right. have these programs. They may be different, though. Right. Uh, the, and I think, Michael, you and I were talking earlier today. You had a great analogy about one of the issues that MAKO has with this bill, and I think it'd be great mm-hmm. if, if you sort of explain it to our listeners. Yeah, so, I mean, so this, you're, you're right in the framing of this bill. This is a local offering, and mm-hmm. almost every county has set up some version of this sort of thing. If you serve a number of years, you get a benefit. Here's how it's calculated. Each county does their own thing. I mean, this is the typical, hey, this is a local function. This isn't really the kind of thing that state legislation is usually in on. Um, the, the, I mean, the key argument that I think the sponsor and the supporters have is, well, you can, there are, pensions can be portable, right. right? If this is kind of like a pension, that there are places in the state, um, a number of counties have their own pension system. Some mm-hmm. of the larger counties run their own system, right? So if you're an employee in Baltimore County, and then you pick up and you move to Anne Arundel County, um, those two counties have a reciprocal arrangement to basically say, if someone leaves Baltimore County with 30 13-year service and comes to Anne Arundel County, uh, we don't make her start the clock all over. We'll let her continue in the new pension system. Um, the way you do that is you pick up the assets that she put in and her employer put in. They pull them out of the Baltimore County system. You transfer them to the Anne Arundel County system, and that helps pay for the for the benefits that she'll one day one day get. Makes perfect sense, right? So so that's how you can make a portable pension system 
work because you've got both assets and future liabilities right. and you keep them together. Okay, so that's that's the that's the way this works for pensions. That logic doesn't work for a LOSAP benefit. So because this is not there's no contribution of today's dollars. Right. Well, the contribution is effectively this person is giving service time to the benefit of that jurisdiction. And that's what we attach a LOSAP benefit to. Right. So if you're, you know, if you're in Anne Arundel County where we, you know, where you and I both live mm-hmm. um, and you work as a volunteer firefighter after a certain number of years, you're entitled to a certain benefit. Uh, if this bill passes again, this is, this whole area is local stuff. The counties decide what they want to do. Uh, the counties have decided we want to give these incentives for people to work and serve as volunteers. And it works great. And this is what's affordable. This is what works for our county. Right. Okay. Right. Local decisions. So, so if this bill were to pass, then somebody who you know used to work in Baltimore County now wants to come and work as a and, and serve as a volunteer in Anne Arundel County. Suddenly, Anne Arundel has to absorb a. 25-year benefit for someone who's only been in Anne Arundel County for five years or 10 years and suddenly have to pay the full freight for each one of those people, um, right. that, that's potentially getting them in for a lot more than they bargained for. You could end up with jurisdictions that just shrink back the benefits exactly. for everybody. Exactly. It could have unintended consequences. Yeah. So, um, so as a practical matter, as, as, as people around town know, Mako typically sits at the table and talks about local discretion. These are this this should be a local decision. It's a local function. It's county dollars. This is not really the kind of thing state legislatures should be telling us what to do. Right. That's our central view here. But I think there's a nuts and bolts argument against this bill as well. So the reason we're concerned about it is there's still been talk about it, even though we're we're, we're past the crossover date. Right. I think a, a great um, phrase that you used there was that you know if you passed a bill some years ago and you thought okay we we have some idea of what this is going to cost us if all of a sudden you have a bunch of volunteer firefighters who are great people and they do great service. Moving from another county to your county, all of a sudden, the legislation you passed some years ago has a huge fiscal hit that you did not intend on it having when the bill was passed. And all of a sudden, you got to come up with all this money. Um, that That's really not the way that we would like to do things. We like to forecast out what legislation is going to cost us in future years. So um, a potential issue here, and we certainly don't want this to have the unintended consequences of um, folks having to slash a benefit. Right. So so this is a House bill that's still in the House Appropriations Committee. Mm-hmm. So ordinarily, we might be inclined to say, oh, that looks like it's dead. The, de- the deadline has passed. Uh, we know the committee is still talking about this bill, so that's why it's on our update list. Um, it, it leads me to mention another bill that's now in the House. This is a Senate bill in the House, but the way you just framed that argument mm-hmm. of an existing program getting expanded dramatically by a pending bill, um, this is another one we're worried about. It's a, it's a local option property tax credit uh, basically designed for longtime residents in the same home in your county. Right. And 
This is something that was only created two years ago. Um, and by and large, Mako shows up at the table. And as long as things are local option, if it's up to the county governing body whether to do something, we don't we don't complain about it. We say that that's fine. If somebody wants to do this, that sounds fine to us. Right. So I, I I don't remember whether we supported that bill or took no position. But I don't believe we had any opposition to the bill. So the, the current law, and I, I believe it's four counties have launched this program. Mm-hmm. Uh, the current law is if you've been in a, in your home within the county for more than 40 years, the county can give a local option tax credit. We'll, we'll, we'll you know, put, put, a, put a ceiling on how much you pay in taxes or we'll give you half off or something like that. It's a county decision what to do. Right. Um, so a bill in this year proposes to change the nature of that. Instead of 40 years, it drops the threshold to 25 years. So now it's a broader universe. And also, no longer would restrict the program to people who are in the same home, just people who have lived in the same county. And that could cause major challenges, you know, documenting how long you've been in the county. How How is all that going to work? Right. Um, so the, the jurisdictions who are trying to do the 40-year program, and you know, they're already having challenges with how do you document this sort of thing. It's not It's not have you owned the property. Is your name on the title for 40 years. It's have you been living there for 40 years. Um, this is this is a potentially tricky issue, but it raises that exact same concern you just mentioned on the LOSAP bill, right. and, and that is, what do you say to to Howard County or Harford County or a jurisdiction that's already decided to do this? They're already trying to administer Program A, and now you change the law and say, no, 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 pro- it's not going to be Program A. It's going to be Program A plus plus plus, and we're going to have a whole bunch of new people, and it's going to be even harder to define. And you already have on the books, so you, you're along for the ride, right? I mean that that that's certainly concerning. And again, you mentioned how you know it, you don't you don't have to own a property; you just have to have lived here. So let's say you had a roommate, you live with somebody who has a home, and their name is on the deed, and they can show that yes, I've owned this property for this many years. But I walk in and say, well, I've lived here, and I bring in a utility bill from whatever, right. and, and I say, yeah, I've lived here the entire time, and I want this benefit. You've passed it, so now I get it. The state says I get it now. Obviously major concerns for local governments that have enacted this uh, this tax credit. So that's, that's an interesting wrinkle. I mean, ordinarily, when the state mandates that we do something, we resist it. When they give us options, we don't resist it. But this is a circumstance of you gave us an option, and now you're kind of blowing up the deal. Yeah. Um, so, so we've got some concerns with that bill. That's out of the Senate. It's in the House Ways and Means Committee. Um, it'll have its hearing. We'll get an opportunity to talk about it because there wasn't there wasn't a House bill that did this. So, so. Well, we'll get a swing at it. You know, I don't think they do stuff like that in Guam, but we do need to take a right. look. Yeah, we should, uh, right. I don't think that's the kind of stuff they do down there. But, yes, we will have a chance to speak on this bill in the Ways and Means Committee. Let's One more bill here. Let's talk about House Bill 88. This has to do with the Prescription Drug Monitoring Program. Um, the updates here, uh, this, this bill is being work-grouped in the House and the Senate. Essentially, this bill has to do with information that is pumped into the prescription drug monitoring program and who should have access to that information. 
we're trying to weed out bad doctors. We're trying to weed out doctor shopping from patients and make sure that doctors have all the information they need before they prescribe um, a controlled substance to someone who Mm -hmm. may be trying to get as much of this medication as they can uh, and selling it on the street or abusing it, whatever they may be doing. We want everyone to have access to this information so that we can make the best informed decisions. And one of the things that Mako is looking for here is making sure that our health departments have access to this information. Um, I think, you know, we can we can talk about this a bit, but um, it seems like things may come together in the House. Again, the bill's being work grouped, and we may not get exactly what we want here, but if we can have the ability to find the bad docs and, and be able to prevent this doctor shopping and be able to hold people accountable, I think that's a win for Mako. Yeah, I mean, the... The opioid crisis is is just heartbreaking in scope and its persistence. That that we've put so much effort into trying to combat this problem, and in many parts of the state, the numbers continue to go up. Unfortunately, so so I mean, it's a it's a terrible circumstance to be in. Um, this is the kind of thing that has has it just continues to grip county leaders from every part of the state. So we're we're looking for every club in the bag we can find to go after this. And I think you got right to the point that the the, the program we have now for monitoring prescription drugs and who's prescribing and you know who's 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 doing that um, is pretty good right now at calming down the doctor shopping. Mm-hmm. So a person who's just seeking medication and is, you know, feigning injury or that sort of thing. Um, if she's going building to building, talking to different doctors, uh, they have to file. It's in a database. Each doctor can pull up this this patient and say, wow, she just got a prescription, you know, three, day, three, three days ago for 150 pills, and she's at my office talking about needing pills for a backache. That's, that's an alarm. And the PDMP we, is great yeah, for that. Yeah, so we, did, we didn't have a system that did that all that well until the last several years. Mm-hmm. So, so we've made good strides on that front. But now I think you know, we've heard from law enforcement, from public health practitioners, that the piece that's, that we're not as good at is what if there's one office, you know, one office in your county that everybody's walking out of there with a, with a painkiller prescription. Right. And if, if that's really what's going on, let's get that data. If we assemble it that way into the hands of somebody who can respond to it, whether it's a matter of licensing or whether it's law enforcement or whether it's public health professionals, you know, let's make sure that that's actionable information too, because we know that's part of the problems. I mean, some of the statistics that I heard um, from County Executive Shu mm-hmm. and other people testifying on this bill, the overwhelming share of people who end up as as uh, you know fatalities from over- overdoses, the overwhelming share of them started their problem with legal prescription medication. The vast majority, yeah. yes, unfortunately. And so this just gives us another tool in the toolbox, like we mentioned, to to try and combat this crisis that's gripping jurisdictions across the state. This is no longer a problem just in the inner cities. This is a problem everywhere in Maryland, and and we need every resource that we can get our hands on to try and address it. So in terms of legislative progress, this is another exception to the rule, and that's why we wanted to mention it. If you're just following, has the bill passed? If If you're following this subject, you might be depressed by seeing the House bill still in the House, the Senate bill still in the the Senate. Uh, Rest assured, it looks like the House has taken the lead on this, 
but we expect a bill is going to pass. We don't know what it'll look like yet, but in the last couple of weeks, we think a bill is going to move out of the House. Watch House Bill 88, probably. House Bill 88, keep an eye on it. All right, so that'll wrap up our um, our bill review here, our sort of where are we now. Um, there are two weeks left in session. There's a lot of time for uh, bills to pop out. Conference committees are happening now. Yeah. Michael, talk a little bit about the last two weeks of session. And we know that a, a bill cannot pass unless the Senate and the House both pass an identical version of that bill. So what we're seeing right now is there are bills that have passed the House and they've passed the Senate, but they may have a few differences. They may not be exactly uh, in line with one another, but yeah. that can't work. So right now we have a bunch of conferences going on. Right. That's that's the most important part. There, I mean, there's a a lot of grist that happens between now and the last day of session right. where basically everything's on track to happen. They just have to cross through, you know, cross all the T's and dot all the I's and finish all the paperwork. So there's a lot of bills where you see the Senate bill goes over to the House and it gets an amendment and then the Senate has to agree, blah, blah, blah. Right. So, I mean, there, there's a lot of just nuts and bolts, that sort of thing. What's the most interesting stuff that's happening now are we've made mention through this podcast of things that are being work grouped. So the the prescription drug monitoring program, some reforms there. We think something's going to happen there. Um, you know, there's going to be other issues like that where a work group solves things, and then you end up with hopefully some kind of consensus. W- what you just laid out is the other interesting thing is where the Senate and House have some difference. They both want to pass a bill, but they have sometimes meaningful differences mm-hmm. over the best way to target the problem. Right. And the last couple of weeks uh, – usually are about trying to find some alignment that both sides can agree on. So you mentioned a conference committee or conferences. What what this is is when the House and Senate have a disagreement, uh, they appoint a small group. Typically it's three senators and three delegates to convene, try and work things out as a, as a matter between the two sides. And then the conference report ends up being an amendment to the final version of the bill. And then the conference report has to be adopted by the floor of the House and the floor of the Senate on a yes or no vote. No final amendments, no changes. You can't even fix a comma. Once it's in a conference report, it has to be done the exact same form on both sides. That's the way you get bills into perfect alignment between the House and the Senate. Uh, What it does, though, is it takes 141 delegates and 47 senators trying to sort out what they want to do on these bills. Now it becomes in the hands of six, three and three, they sort it out. At least four members have to sign on to a conference report for that to be submitted. Um, that we will see probably two, three, four hundred conference committees before the end of this session. I mean, we're we're we're, we're up in the close to record territory. Over three thousand bills introduced this year. Um, we knew that number was common. Yes, uh, but um, so so there's going to be you know certainly scores, if not hundreds, of conference committees around town where you know here's a senator got a copy of the bill and all this stuff paper clipped to it finds the the delegate who's the chair of the conference committee the two of them talk they get the other conferees together in the hallway between the house and the senate this is a really common sight for these last yeah, couple of very weeks. informal and right. it, you know it's really hard to pass a bill in the exact same posture um you know through the senate and the house so there are changes that are made and that you know you mentioned this is going to be going on throughout the end you know until the end of session this sure. will be going on until midnight of sign you die oh yeah and oftentimes you see bills die in conference committee up mm-hmm. until the last minute maybe they were almost there maybe they were having an argument about that comma you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier they couldn't quite work it out and they ran out of time right. so i mean this goes on all the way until the end and it's really fascinating yeah 
So that'll do it for this week's episode of the Conduit Street Podcast. We will be back next week. Uh, We will have more updates for you, lots of stuff going on this week and next week. Uh, We hope you enjoy the podcast. If you do, please give us a like on whatever platform you use to listen to our podcast. Also, tell your friends. It helps us get our message out. But for now, we're going to go get back to work here. We will talk to you all next week. Michael and Kevin signing off. We'll see you soon.